Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, have the Democratic candidates lost hope in Obama for the midterms? Then, 11 questions that may decide who will have control of the Senate. In the Middle East, battle for control of Iraq. Is ISIS winning? Lastly, new Catholic Church doctrine coming from the Vatican. Is this a kinder, gentler Catholic Church, or are they changing with the times? That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in America. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, ironically, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And across the table from me, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox and Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock across the table, he is the longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count of four presidents. He is a very distinguished and handsome fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is longtime Democratic political op- operative and a bar certified attorney here in the District of Columbia as well as elsewhere. He is Daniel Lipner Esquire. Hello, Dan. Hey, Justin. Glad to be here in this beach weather here in D.C. I know. It's amazing. Beautiful day today. It's just too hot for October, though. Hey, we've got a huge show going, coming to you today. Uh, we're going to start off right out of the out of the gate talking about President Obama and has the Democratic Party lost hope in President Obama during these midterms. Uh, President Obama has been largely unseen in several key Senate races across the country. Uh, many Democrats have, in some accounts, been pulling away from President Obama and some of his decision-making. It is a big news story here inside the Beltway. We're going to start off, Dan. It seems that Senate candidates on the Democratic side are saying thanks, but no thanks to the White House and President Obama for, on the stump. Is this a major sign that he's lost his allure and his ability to really generate to get out the vote for the Democratic candidates for Senate? No, uh, he never had it. He, uh, President Obama has never had had coattails for down tickets. Even from his first election, he didn't have it. Uh, that being said, what, what you're seeing is the Republicans reaping the benefit of six years of scorched earth, throwing everything, including when the cat got lost, and blaming that on, on Obama. 
it it, it seems odd to me though, uh, Alan Moore, that we haven't seen, uh, you know, the president even at his worst, President Bush still had some ability to draw Republican base into the voting booths and to raise money. We're not seeing this in President Obama. Well, the the president is is raising money, raising a lot of money. Uh, taking some flack for all of the fundraisers he's doing, but they'll, they'll happily take the flack as long as they uh, pull in the dough. Um, it, it, there, it, there is a question unanswered of whether he has any ability to bring out some of the folks that enthusiastically supported him, particularly African-Americans, in some of these tight races. It's not clear that he has that ability, but he's, he's trying to do that in a way that doesn't interfere with the, the tactics of the Democratic candidates, and there's a few states where where that could be be relevant. Now he's he's not being seen, but we do hear from him from time to time. Most recently, last week, uh, this got a little coverage, uh, a little smirking coverage in the press when he was at a fundraiser, uh, a private home fundraiser, um, happened to be the home of uh, a 26 million dollar home up in Connecticut, where he said that Republicans were the party of millionaires and billionaires. So not only was it at the, this over-the-top estate, but the owner of that home and the host of the party was a guy named Rich Richman. So that the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the late-night comics had some fun with that. But at $32,000 a head to show up at the party, he still raised a lot of money. Dan Lipner. Well, a couple things. Yes, Alan is correct as far as the, uh, the president is the fundraiser-in-chief. Uh, but beyond that, there's also the Bannock Street Project, which I've talked about a little before. And for those of you who don't know, the Bannock Street Project is the first attempt to use uh, the OFA's GOTV effort in an off-year election. Okay, put that in terms that people in Nebraska can take. So that that means the giant force of boots on the ground, door knockers, people making phone calls, actually getting people to the polls. And those are things you don't necessarily see. So with in contrast to the president showing up and doing an event for Allison Lenderson Grimes or even the fundraisers, which still get some press, these are the robocalls, which everyone just loves. These are the mailings that you don't actually see. And these are the, the ground troops, the young people knocking on your doors, driving vans, getting people from generally lower income minority neighborhoods out to the polls and getting them to vote on election day. Carl Tubin. Well, first of all, the president is, is doing a fundraiser and sometimes getting criticized for it because of the fact that we have so many issues. But he's also running the country. He's getting us through this Ebola situation here. He's, uh, he's trying to be active in that. He wants to know uh, what happened to this nurse in uh, uh, and how did you get the, uh, the disease? Also, uh, trying to put together a coalition uh, for, for the ISIS thing, which which he's done quite well in, and uh, in my mind, and you know that's what he should be doing. And and also, I think the country sees that and uh, hopefully respects it. Uh, these candidates. Are doing well on their own. Uh, uh, somebody who we thought would never see the light of day uh, is in a very, very close race with Governor Rounds and, uh, and uh, 
South Dakota. Now, Wrestler could come in and take that race away. Uh, but, you know, right now, it's uh, it's Waylon and Rounds. Bob Hines, you're giggling over there. What are your yeah, thoughts? I, I think the president is doing the wise thing. He's raising money and he's staying away from candidates. And that's what he's doing. Uh, it's probably the best thing he can do because it's very clear that a number of senators who are running for re-election do not want him in their state. And that's that's unusual, I think. We would all agree that's somewhat unusual. No, it's not. It, it's not unusual. Not Dan Lipner. In uh, the last two years of W's term, he, he was not exactly welcome. That's true. Uh, Reagan also was not welcome near the end. Uh, Bill, Bill Clinton, uncharacteristically, in 98, was welcomed because in the backlash to the Lewinsky scandal, but in, in 94, he was not. This is the new politics of the commander-in-chief, the giant target on his back, and, and running away from an off-year election is nothing new. But, but Bob Hines, though, when, when, when we hear Dan's explanation, I mean, other than Ronald Reagan, I disagree with him on Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was very much welcome in his second term, even towards the end. He was a great communicator, but even considering uh, Bush's last term as president, the last, he's not even invited to the convention. Well, well I mean, again, I, 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 I agree with that, but you have Bush's last term as president. He still had a base behind him that brought him into places like Texas, brought him into places like Florida, but we didn't see him in modern places like Ohio or the Midwest, or even some of the Republican non-strongholds like the West Coast. How is it that we can see the power of the presidency erode, not just here in Obama, but even with Bush? Is this a sign that the White House is losing its allure as a coattail manufacturer or somebody that can draw in votes? I don't think that it depends always on the person. And right now we have someone in the White House who is not very good at uh, retail politics. He doesn't really seem to like it very much. And but he can raise money, and he's doing it. And I think he's. And I think that's what the candidates want him to do because they don't want him. They don't want him in their districts, in their, in their states. And joining us at the table, Rebecca Kaufman here, joining us late, but that's okay. We, we'll, we'll forgive you this one time. Thank you for the welcome. Yeah, anyway, Rebecca, you had thoughts. Yeah, I definitely reject the premise that this is a trend we're seeing with presidencies. I think that what we're seeing is the American populace rejecting Obama's policies the same way the American populace was rejecting George W. Bush's policies, right? The invasion in Afghanistan and Iraq weren't popular during the end of his presidency, and that's why we didn't have him out stumping for GOP candidates. The same thing is happening with Obama. Obamacare is wildly unpopular. It's a failure. There's been lots of examples of That's failed not. leadership. In Kentucky, he's not invited, even though it's wildly popular and successful. In, in Kentucky, Kentucky Allison Wunderding Grimes' volunteers were asked to wear sweatshirts over their Hope and Change speakers because that is how ashamed they are of Barack Obama and how much they want to distance themselves from Obama. In Iowa, we didn't really didn't even have Obama come out for him. They had to invite Michelle, who incidentally got his name wrong. So across the board, we're seeing vulnerable Democrats running away from Obama and his failed policies. It's not a reflection of the White House eroding. It's a reflection of unpopular policies. Carl Tuvin. Uh, by the way, uh, 
way, uh, Michelle wasn't the only one who got his name, name wrong. The late night people have also got his name. Somebody called him Martin, somebody called him something else. Well, that's as 
Obamacare, everyone hates it. But when you refer to it as the Kentucky Link or something, I forgot what the exact name is. Connect. Uh, Kentucky Connect. People think it's the greatest thing. They think it's so much better than Obamacare. So the PR failure on the White House is absolutely correct. But the actual substance of the law is still open for debate. Carl Tuvin? Uh, Joni Ernst brought up Obamacare in, the, in her debate uh, a day or so ago and, and uh, said, you know, we should rescind Obamacare. The reporter asked her, well, what would you do to all the, for all these people who would lose insurance? And she had no answer. No answer at all, and they have no, no um, plan for what to put in place for it. Alan Moore. Yeah, I think I think that, that that Dan has this exactly right, and that is that the jury is still out. Ultimately, there are obviously a lot of people who have benefited. A lot of people who didn't have coverage, couldn't get coverage, now have coverage. There's also an enormous amount of disruption, and no one is paying attention to to the price tag. So, but, but just, just, just for a couple of facts to reflect upon as we watch over the next months and year and, or, or two and beyond what, what happens. There are something like four or five million people who now are insured who were not insured before. Those are the total numbers. Now, people come and go and come and go. So, four to five million, there, there's dispute over these numbers. What we've spent not to give people free insurance, but to make insurance more affordable and subsidize it here and there, we've spent over $70 billion. So we've spent in the neighborhood, if you just do those simple metrics, in the neighborhood of fourteen to 15000 per person to get some people insured. That is a crappy deal. Now, that doesn't, that's not the final word. Some of that investment is sunk, setting it up. We spent $2 billion for the website, which was supposed to cost a billion. Everything is costing a lot more. There's a lot down the road and a lot of questions about, about whether this was a good deal. The reform question, changing it, which is what most Republicans talk about, um, it is going to remain to be seen. There are a lot of ideas floating around out there about different kinds of fixes, but no no single focus of what the right but answer is. But, Rebecca, this is a strategy that the GOP used in 2012, largely. Many look at it as unsuccessful. Uh, many look at it as just a vacant war cry of, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem. Going to Carl's point, there wasn't a solution brought up. It, it just seems what's going to be different now in 2014 that didn't work in 2012. <laughs> This isn't a strategy or a vacant war cry. This is a real crisis that we're seeing. People's premiums are skyrocketing. 500 million Americans have been kicked off their plans. This isn't a PR issue. This is a severely flawed policy. It's a bad product. It's hard to sell a bad product, and that's why Democrats. But it seems to be selling, though. If you look at places that would largely be, you, if you look at places that would largely be red states, i.e., Kentucky. <clears throat> Uh, even even some in Florida, it has a good rating down there. People in D.C., I myself, a Republican, I benefited from Obamacare, and I, I don't see the problem with it. It just seems to me that instead of constantly barra just constantly barraging the media with Obamacare stinks, Obamacare stinks, this is a situation where the GOP could really take the reins and say, 
we're not coming to you talking about the problem. Here's our solution. What's different now, though? It doesn't seem like that's taken. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I think we're still seeing a lot of, no, this isn't working, instead of, hey, here is what we should be doing. And that's a problem. There should be more forward-facing solutions coming from the GOP. But there's no denying that Obamacare is a failure. And when you talk about Obamacare, you need to look at the full package. How much of this is generational theft that, that in the next decade, we're going to have to pay, I think, $1 trillion one trillion dollars was added to the national debt. One point three trillion dollars was added. Not Obamacare. In. You're you're conflating issues. Oh, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let her finish. I'll get to you, Dan. Hold on. So, how much of this is trans, is generational theft that we're gonna that's gonna fall on the backs of my generation to pay? Um, how much of this is affecting your taxes, Justin? How much of this? How many people are being kicked off their plans? Is the quality of your health care the same? I mean, you can't just talk in a vacuum about singular factors when it comes to Obamacare. You have to look at the whole picture. Is but again, I go back to the question. Whole. But again, I go back to the question. What is different? It's still the party of no, particularly when it comes to Obamacare. That, nobody's coming up with a solution. Not. We just no. said that. They're not talking about it right now. This is an issue that sort of dropped into the background. They're, the criticisms are muted in most cases. It, it's, not the same, it's not the same line of repeal that we were hearing two years ago or even a year ago, because there are a lot of people who are benefiting, and no one is asking the question of whether this was a, a smart, good investment or not. And no. it's going to take time. But, to but, that, but Dan Lipner, but that's the actual issue here as far as what we're talking about. So Republicans do have one chamber, and that one chamber could have produced something to reform health care. They have, they have all the votes. They could have voted something out of the House. But Dan, but let me finish my point. And then blame Harry Reid for not reforming Obamacare. That didn't happen. But what we do have is in the handful of places where there have been third-party candidates, we're seeing a pox on both your houses. So this is in South Dakota and Kansas, that everyone hates the political spin, that it isn't a policy conversation. Despite what we, the conversations we have around this table, that isn't what the political spin is going on. But you're talking about an administration who's literally defined itself on political spin, and they can't seem to get their arms wrapped around getting the message out. That's not true. I, you're, you're, suggesting, you're suggesting that this giant piece of legislation wasn't a thing. There, this, this isn't smoke and mirrors. It was produced. It did change a, a rather large portion of the U.S. economy, which is the health industry. Rebecca? Rebecca Coffin. I think there was a revealing announcement from the White House today, which is that they're not revealing the 2015 insurance costs until November 15th, which is after the election. And I don't think that that was a coincidence. I think that we're going to see insurance rates skyrocketing. Carl, Carl Tubin. Well, uh, you know, if, if we had a, a Congress, as we had 20 years ago, uh, a lot of things that have happened in Obamacare would have been taken by committee, talked to the talked to, figure it out, and changed it. There was something uh, something that went to the court, I wish I could remember the issue, a few, a few weeks ago, where there was some wording as to whether states can do what they are doing if they don't have, if they don't get into uh, Obamacare. That could have been straightened out by the Ways and Means Committee, in the Senate Finance Committee, they could have changed a few words of legislation, and we could have gone forward. But but would have, could have, should have. Bob Hines, we're still seeing a gridlock that has maybe caused the president to become unpopular with Senate 
Democratic candidates. He's definitely not touching House races at this point, and even the governor's races, where you have a close Democratic or a Democratic frontrunner, are saying to the White House, stay away. Is Obamacare part of the reason why this we're seeing this absolute isolation from the White House? Well, I think it's it probably is a part of the issue, but it's it's much more than that. I mean, the president just doesn't seem to deal with the problems he's got to deal with. It's just he seems not to be engaged as much as he should be. Uh, I mean, his go ahead. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no, finish but, your thought. But the reality is. It isn't working. Almost anything he touches seems to cause does not seem to work. It, it, it sounds like to me that Obama's a real third rail right now for the Dems. On television, it's not working. To Carl's point, this this president is a, is a great orator. He is not a great communicator. They are different things. It is not his skill set, and it never has been. So, as as far as he dealing with things that are out there, I'm, are you honestly suggesting that? that domestic politics and knocking on doors is more important than Ebola, ISIS, and everything else that's going on in the world? I mean, we've spent more than a handful of time well, talking about Putin. Well, oh, let's talk I mean, about some of that Mind you, oh. none of that is on any of the political agendas on any campaign because everyone left town without wanting to talk about it. Alan Moore? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was just going to say that, that, that this election is not about Obamacare. That's, that's about it fifth tier issue right now and most people thinking now if if you have health insurance that didn't before it might be i don't care about anything else i'm going to vote for this guy because i wouldn't have it without him and there are plenty of others most people's situation didn't change all that much and people we never seem to worry anymore in this country about what stuff costs and whether we're ever getting value for the massive investments we make but but the issues that are driving this election are the uncertainties about the economy, which take lots of different forms. If you're working, if you're out of work, if you're hoping for work, if your kids are getting a job, what your, what your future setup is. So, so personal economics, uh, kids' education, whether that's ever going to happen, whether there's any hope for them. And then the whole world, the, the Ebola crisis, which has popped up and made people uncertain about whether the government is competent and whether we're at risk. And then, as Bob mentioned, the whole uh, world of international affairs where the Obama plan to pull back and get away from everything and not worry about what we leave behind overstates the quality of what's left behind. And then now we're back. We're trying to put a coalition together. We're not doing that well in this coalition building. We, we're... we're <laughs> We're not able we're, to identify. Well, we're going to talk about that. I'm just saying. These, are slightly more willing. Hold on. These, hold on. These, these are the issues that are driving the election more than Obamacare for the moment. Now, it, in, in a given state, it may it may be a plus or a minus for for, for given candidates, but but the jury is out on uh, ultimate jury on on how on on the, the measures of success and failure uh, compared to the cost. But but what will drive this election is this sense of fear about where the country is headed, what that means for me and my family and my community, and those things, fairly or not, are working against the president. So candidates say, send him some money and stay out of my district. Dan Lipner, last word. So and I, I actually agree with Alan. And 
when you look at the actual numbers of how much people approve of each political party, they're both atrocious. Democrats are slightly higher than Republicans, but as as a as John McCain said, we're, they're a little both beyond friends and family, not by much. So that's what this election is really about. It's a lesser of two evils because we're not talking about issues. Well, we'll let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk about a Politico story that came out yesterday, 11 questions that may decide who controls the Senate in 2014. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about Senate elections here for the midterm. Uh, James Holman, a great writer for Politico, uh, came up with an article yesterday I found intriguing. Great read if you get a chance to look through it. It's the 11 questions that will decide the Senate and how it looks coming up in the midterms. Uh, the first question bringing up South Dakota is, are the Democrats bluffing in the Badlands? 
is uh, after a bad recruiting effort to get a solid Democrat into the race, you've got uh, former Republican Mike Rounds uh, not running a real textbook campaign out there, uh, but you've got Rick Welland, a businessman uh, who's made some great strides in that race. Alan Moore, is this is this something that uh, the GOP is a little worried about? Well, they're a little worried about it. Yeah, I think it's fool's gold in this particular instance. It, it, it's it would be, it's not so much that, that Whalen has become this great candidate. I think Rounds is disappointed. But the bizarre thing in that race is that former Senator Larry Pressler, who was a two-term, I think, senator, and then he's been out of the Senate for a, a lot of years, and is a bit of an oddball, living in D.C., official residence in D.C., um, doesn't spend a lot of time in South Dakota, is pulling more than 25% in the polls. Now, either the polls are wrong, which certainly is possible, people are just ticked off at pollsters, or everybody is so mad at the former governor and the conventional parties that they think, we don't care if Larry's a little strange. We kind of remember him. It's, he's been out of the Senate for a long time. Um, let's... Let's vote for the old guy. What do we care? What difference does it make? Carl Tubin, is this a situation where you've got Rick Wellen riding on the coattails of what some see as a very successful senator in Tim Johnson? Uh, Wellen's gotten the commitment from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSEC, saying that it would spend a million dollars on just that race. Is this a light at the end of the tunnel? For the Dems, it could be, and we'll see. What Whalen is is a, a protege, basically, of Tom Daschle. Daschle and Reed had a big fight over uh, giving support and money to uh, to Rick, and it's only because of this scandal that's uh, happened out there on this 5B program of having uh, uh, foreigners come in, invest in the business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Some of that money was was lost. It's gone, and and it's been investigated. Still investigations going on, and Rounds is a part of that, which has kind of diminished him. Rick has has is making his second round of every city, every little city, big city in in South Dakota. He's run a great. He's run a wonderful campaign on little money, and now he's going to get this one million dollars. For, uh, for uh, advertising for the next three, four weeks. Jan Lipner. Yeah, uh, the follow-up on that million dollars in South Dakota, uh, having just come back from North Dakota earlier this summer, a million dollars is not chump change in that area of the country. That is more than a full media buy. Every, every media consultant I spoke to was absolutely giggling at having a million dollars to spend on TV in that area of the world. That's a real campaign there. I, I got to tell you something. I mean, a million dollars in the, in South Dakota pretty much buys every advertising spot on all three networks Absolutely. for the next month and a half. Absolutely. <laughs> That's not exactly big, big market out there. Uh, who wins this? Around the table, Bob Hines, GOP, Dems. I think I think that it's going to end up in a – they're going to have to have a, a runoff election. A, I don't know a, a recount, you mean? A recount. No, they're gonna have a, it's going to be a runoff. I think this, nobody is going to get the, the majority. Interesting. Carl Tubin? I think <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm sticking with Rick, Rick uh, Whalen. Becca? 
yeah, the Republicans will, will, will prevail, but it, it took a lot more effort and time and money than it should have. Dan Lipner? Will it or Pressler? All right. Uh, next question. Arkansas, can Tom Cotton reassure any doubters that he might have? Uh, Tom Cotton, a, an Army veteran, uh, had some really good, good play in Washington, uh, seen as a up-and-coming uh, up-and-coming rising star in the in the GOP. However, he stumbled uh, last week over a question about was Obama doing enough to contain the Ebola crisis. Uh, but at the same time, you've got uh, Mark Pryor uh, is spending a lot of money in, again, a small market television market like Arkansas. Why is it that Tom Cotton or Mark Pryor haven't really been defined or come up with a definitive lead? Let's start with you, Bob Hines. I don't understand why it's settled the way it has. I've been surprised at the at the campaigns of both of them. Uh, I think Cotton is uh, is a good candidate, but he has not yet excited a lot of people. But Dan Lipner, he's got a small lead over Mark Pryor, but it seems every time we see a new poll coming out of Little Rock, it's got Pryor just coming up, edging up on Cotton. Well, a couple of things. One, Mark Pryor is a surprising politician in general. And in addition to our previous point, Mark Pryor actually embraced Obamacare. He's one of the handful of Democrats that did this election cycle. And beyond that, don't forget the Bubba factor. Uh, Clinton is very much vested, Bill Clinton is very much vested in this race. As yeah. is his father, as is Senator Pryor's oh, father. Senator Pryor's yeah. Father. I mean, there is there is political legacy there, and and I'm not going to under undercount the the value of of those contacts and that legacy. Um, Carl Tuvin. I was going to point out that that uh, the father and the mother have been campaigning all over Arkansas, and that somebody. And by the way, doing it with Bill Clinton close in tow. Right. Right. And also. Um, they, they talked about, they, they compared it to a, an a, the Antique Show program, you know, where they're going around and seeing everybody. You mean Antique Roadshow? Antique Roadshow. He's saying human antiques. They are meeting old friends, old allies, and getting a lot of people pumped up. And I think that and the Clintons are going to move this into the Democratic College. Bob Hines, who pulls it off? Cotton or Pryor? I think Pryor wins. Carl Tuvin. Becca. Hi. He's not the greatest candidate, but he's got a terrific uh, uh, military record. And with with the anti-incumbent mindset, it'll be common. Dan Lipner. Bill Clinton will go door to door if necessary to make sure Mark Pryor gets to keep his seat. (laughs) Okay. Let's look at Louisiana, where you have incumbent Democratic Senator Mary Landrieu. Uh, going up in a likely runoff against the uh, uh, the Republican candidate Bill Cassidy, is is this runoff possibly in Louisiana big enough to sway whether this stays Democratic or Republican? Bob Hines. Well, I think the Republican will win in Louisiana. I don't think you think Bill Cassidy's going to pull it out over Alandra. I do. Although the polls don't show that coming out of Baton Rouge, they still have the Landrieu name still has a lot of marquee value. Dan Lipner? Yeah, Mary Landrieu has had a runoff every time she's been on the ballot, and Republicans have thrown everything, including the kitchen sink, at her. 
I, 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 I found it challenging when she had her little residency issue, but she seems to be pulling it off. Carl Tuman. She's got her father out there. She's got a brother who's a mayor of um, uh, New Orleans. Uh, the family's got a great reputation in uh, in um, Louisiana, and I think she'll pull it out. But it's Becca, close. but Becca, you know, when we look at this, when we look at this race, all of a sudden, I mean, I mean, let's be honest, <clears throat> the GOP candidate down there isn't exactly the most dynamic candidate they could have pulled to run against somebody like Mary Landrew. Mary Landrew with the political dynasty, the family name, and she's a smart politician who knows how to work the Louisiana system. We've got a problem possibly in Bill Cassidy, who's not exactly the most dynamic candidate, who doesn't have the legacy that Mary Landrew has, but still has a strong following down there in Louisiana. Well, Landrew's campaign has been plagued with scandals that she's had to struggle with, and I think that that will show at the ballot. Another thing that's going to show at the ballot is that up until now, the Landrews dynasty has been able to toe the line in Louisiana where they're, they've been able to play themselves as fiscally conservative Democrats. That's why they've been able to maintain their popularity in Louisiana. Now we're seeing the GOP relentlessly try to tie her to Obama, and just like all the other vulnerable Democrats right now, she's having to spend her resources running away from them. As John Holman points out in his story, uh, Obama has a 17% approval rating with white voters down in Louisiana. But is that is that enough to make Mary Landrew nervous and Bill Cassidy successful? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on, hold on, Alan Moore. It certainly makes Mary Landrew nervous. Louisiana is a really unusual state because everybody's in round one and you have to win a majority. And so she's always in a runoff because of the, the, the curious rules uh, in uh, in Louisiana. So there will be a runoff. One thing to, that, that, that you have to pay attention to, Landrieu is one of the very rare Democrats who is a pretty has been a pretty consistent friend of the oil and gas industry, which is a very, very important uh, sector of the economy in Louisiana. What the oil and gas guys are trying to figure out is, okay, we can support her now, but in a runoff, then what would we do? Because the last thing we would, especially if it comes down to a, a you know a 50-49 type Senate, would you want to keep her in place and keep Harry Reid in place as a result, or would you say, sorry, Mary, you've been a you, we've, we've liked you. You've certainly been a friend of the industry all of this time, but we can't, we we cannot deal with a, a, a Harry Reid-led Senate. There, there was there was a reference to to the scandal she was involved in. Those are important this time. She was using Senate funds to pay for private flights for political purposes. The whistle got blown on it. It's not clear what the intent was. It doesn't even matter. I think people often have some hubris and think, you know, I don't mean bad. But she had to pay tens of thousands of dollars back to reimburse the Senate for political use of private planes. Those kinds of issues uh, resonate with people, and they become the focus of third-party spending in a in a, in a state, and we can't see that up here, but, but that's a really important issue this time out. Dan Lipner. If only she weren't caught with a prostitute. Oh, no, that's the other senator. 
that was also reelected. Let's be clear, this is Louisiana, where where Democrats literally ran an ad for governor when David Duke was on the ballot saying, vote for the crook, it's important. Louisiana politics are different. So while the scandals aren't good, it's Louisiana. It's just different politics down there. Uh, if this if this does go to a runoff and it becomes a popularity contest, many political insiders think that this is in favor of Landrew rather than the Republican candidate, Bob Hines. Landrew or Cassidy? Cassidy. Carl Tubin? Becca? Cassidy. Cassidy? This isn't terribly insightful. I was, was going to say, this, this is, is all going line. Right. I'm waiting. <laughs> because somebody's got to have... Let's take up Alaska, for example. You've got you've got Mark Begich in in a fight for his life, where he's got pretty much every Democrat willing to vote for him. He's going up. Uh, he's he's going up uh, against uh, uh, Republican Dan Sullivan, who's pretty much got the entire base of the Republican Party voting for him. Uh, Politico says, and John Holman says, this is a situation where. The native Alaskans might define who becomes the senator from Alaska. Alan Moore, is, is this a factor or is this a non-issue? These are all races that at this point are pretty close. They're the, the polls uh, in general are within the margin of error. The Republicans are leading uh, in, I think, all the ones we've talked about, but not by enough to get comfortable. Um, and, uh, and Sullivan has crept ahead. In, in Alaska, um, did he, are, are the polls valid? Are they accurate? Is it too far out? Are people being truthful? Who's going to who's going to get what's, what's going to happen with turnout? Um, and and how big is anti-incumbency? Um, I, I think that that Sullivan, because he actually is a known person with a with, with a record in the state, uh, and, you know, Begich has his record, but Begich. Is, is in some ways the accidental senator who, who beat Ted Stevens, uh, uh, the late Ted Stevens. Uh, I think that uh, that that the baggage may be too much for baggage, and that uh, uh, that this is Sullivan's time. Becca, I think that a lot like South Dakota, it's going to come down to to an extent who puts more money in, and the GOP right now is pouring money into Alaska, but then again, so are the Democrats. I mean, it's important to keep in mind that in South Dakota, what, there's like 8,000 people who live in the entire state? I mean, how <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even exaggerating. And like, so a listening audience, that's the Republican speaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm speaking the truth. It's about a half a million, actually. Close, though, Becca, close. Something like that. Something like that. This, okay. Okay. Anyway, what, my point is that money will play a unique role in Alaska just the same way it's playing in South Dakota. Carl Tubin? Well, you know, Beckett started out uh, going up to Alaska, saying how he was a thorn in the president's side, and that's how he got uh, jets to stay in uh, in Alaska in a certain air base, <clears throat> and that's how he got things done for Native Americans, and that's how he got all kinds of other things done. Uh, I'm not sure whether he's still doing that today. But I think that he tried to, to make himself out to be someone who got things done for Alaska, and I think he did. Does anybody want to go against the party line on this one? No. Okay. Iowa. This is an interesting one. 
it's not so much that uh, that the Democrat Bruce Braley, who we talked about earlier, uh, is really, really lighting the world on fire out there in the Midwest, but it seems that Joni Ernst is too far extreme for some of the moderate uh, voters out there in the Hawkeye state. Why is this not so much about the true political race, Bob Hines, as it more is, are you are you in Joni Ernst's camp or are you against Joni Ernst? Well, I think she's going to win. Shocking. She, yeah, I think she's going to win. No doubt, in my mind, no doubt about it. Even though she's been seen as an extreme far right, and we do know that Iowa has a good middle base to the GOP out there. Dan Lipner? I'm actually, I'm actually going to break the party line here with one caveat. Uh, since Joni Ernst is very capable of saying something absolutely insane on the air, uh, <laughs> does anyone here disagree with that point? Nope. I don't, nope. I don't know why she's saying she's extreme. When I listen to her, she sounds reasonable. Yeah. Oh, Kelsey Priest. Uh, I'm just saying, I don't think she's... An ad talking about castrating pigs, if that gets you the nomination and gets you into the Senate, I'm all in favor. Oh, do you not think farmers should be in office? That that said, and that's that's to my point, uh, it's hard for to see a guy who who spoke out against a farmer being head of the Judiciary Committee uh, making headway or continuing to hold Iowa. That that could potentially be a fatal flaw. Carl Tuvin, real quick. Really made a stupid mistake at that point. He should have never said that uh, about another fellow legislator. Uh, I think that Joni Ernst, you know, the Republican Party always seems to come back to what they did <clears throat> two years ago, and that starts to talk about uh, women's things and, and abortion and all kinds of other stuff. And I think that that is starting to happen. And it's happened in a couple of races, and it's going to be their downfall again. Okay, good one. Let's look at Kansas. You have Greg Orman, the Democrat, going against incumbent GOP Senator Pat Roberts. It seems that the uh, anti-incumbent, the anti-incumbent, what's that? Why is everybody looking at me? Independent. Independent. I'm sorry, independent. I say Democrat. I'm sorry. He said Democrat dropped out of the race. Walks like a duck, talks like a duck. Uh, when when we look at the when we look at the independent Greg Orman versus uh, the incumbent GOP Senator Pat Roberts, Pat Roberts, this is again part of the anti-incumbent movement where you see Pat Roberts, a quote as James Holman put it, a, a creature of Washington versus a moderate independent guy who has not come out and said he's going to particularly caucus with any individual party, getting a lot of leeway in this. Bob Hines, is this Pat Roberts to lose, or is Orman a real threat? I think it, Pat, Pat Roberts uh, made some mistakes, like not having a not having a home in the state. Same problem that Dick Luger had a couple of years ago. He doesn't go home. Uh, a month ago, he was uh, he was he was uh, he didn't run over by a truck. Uh, fortunately for him, uh, there's been a lot of money put in there. And Bob Dole and some other people have been very active out there. And um, I think it's, it's it's right now, in my mind, it's really a toss-up. It's really a toss-up. Alan Moore, uh, the Republicans are coming out against uh, Orman's business background. They're pouring a lot of money into questioning his decision-making process and his 
ability to handle the heat of Washington. Uh, this sounds like this could be a tilter either way. Well, it, <laughs> politics is a strange and wonderful business because the I mean, the Democrats, the Democrats think that they won this big war by keeping their candidate off the ballot. No, I know that. It wasn't a big war. They went to court on that. I know. Well, well, <laughs> no, we don't want our Democratic candidate. Orman, Orman, it, it, it's just crazy that, that one, uh, okay, let, 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 me, let me make this clear. I know Pat Roberts and his family. I think he's a fabulous senator. Okay, so I like the man. I know him personally. I really think he's a good senator. So we'll start with that. Now, so a guy who has been a senator there for a long time, member of Congress before that, um, who, who heads off a Tea Party challenge from the right wing in a primary, which everybody thought was going to be the big issue, is suddenly fighting for his political life against a neophyte rich guy who declines to take positions on most issues and declines to say with which party he will caucus other than to say, my intention is to caucus with whoever wins the majority because I think that would be the most helpful for the state. So the point is a guy with no experience, few positions and, and no willingness to talk about where he stands might beat a longtime incumbent who used to be very well thought of and popular. It's a strange, crazy business. I do think because of the passage of time, I think that Ormond peaked, that Ormond peaked, and that and that because folks will reflect and say, gee, we may not like our governor, we may not like this, but we've always liked Pat Roberts, for God's sakes. And maybe there is something to shouldn't these people have to take positions and say who they're going to affiliate with? So I think I think Roberts will pull it out in the end, but man, it, it's a it's it's a close one. Yeah, Dan Dan's yeah. nodding his no. head no, but we'll no. give that one. Negative is too high. Wow. Okay, real quickly, North Carolina. Does anybody think Kay Hagan's going to lose? No. Okay. She oh could. wait a minute. Becca Becca just stared at me waningly, like what the hell? Of course she's going to lose, Becca. <laughs> Becca's not even touching the Hagan race. All right, we'll let that one go. Uh, Colorado, though, becomes interesting, where you've got uh, Democratic activists who've been going after Cory Gardner uh, for his personhood legislation that he did uh, a few years back. As some are saying, it's just completely he's denying it exists. What's that? Cory Gardner is denying the personhood bill exists. But Democrats seem to keep bringing that up. Uh, in 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 huge light, but is it enough to get him to take out Udall's? I, I I will admit I was I'm surprised this one was that close. I I had made the joke the only way Udall is is losing this race is the Republicans propose three pot Tuesday on election day. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, Carl Tubin. I think uh, Udall is depending on turnout. And if uh, if he gets the right turnout, uh, he can win that race. Uh, <clears throat> it all depends. You know, there's a lot going out on out there. There's a competitive race for governor, and his race is competitive. And it's all going to turn out on whether the machine, which they've gotten from 
the Obama campaign, et cetera, whether that works in Colorado. But to Carl and Dan, though, you've got the Denver Post, who has endorsed Udall before, who's endorsed Obama twice, now putting in and saying that they are backing Gardner. Because, as I quote, his obnoxious one-issue campaign is an insult to those he seeks to convince. How does, how does Udall fight that? Well, that's that's part of the question. So there are a couple of things. One is the the the, the one trick pony and the women's vote, which is what they're talking about, and and uh, Gardner's uh, less than flattering approach to the uh, the personhood bill, uh, which again he is just denying exists, even though his name is on the legislation as a co-sponsor. Uh, that being said. This is a surprising race in a bunch of, uh, on that front because there's also the issue because there's a, a large Latino population in Colorado that's pretty pissed off that the president, and this is where he comes into play, has not moved on immigration reform even in places where he can act unilaterally with executive action. So this is putting that in play. It could be that for polling numbers, that for, for those voters, for those Latino voters, that they're they're holding back though on election day they end up voting for Udall. We're going to skip over New Hampshire if they vote. Good point. We're going to skip over New Hampshire and Georgia. Let's go to the big one. Let's go to Kentucky. You've got Allison Grimes, the Democrat, going up against Mitch McConnell, who some see as unpopular even in his home state. This is going to be a big one. Dan Lipner does. Does Allison Grimes have what it takes to take out not only a Republican incumbent senator from Kentucky, but the minority leader of the U.S. Senate? Well, the the fact that Mitch McConnell is the minority leader means in the last week of the, of the race that every piece of discretionary funds that the Republican Senate com- committee has at its disposal, every penny of that is going to go into Kentucky to defend Mitch McConnell. That being said, and it's a reoccurring theme in all of these races, everyone who's in office is unpopular. So it's going to come down to the wire. But Carl Tubin, Grimes didn't do herself any favors or win any major support from the DNC or the DSCC when she was asked about did she vote for Obama, even as late as last night's debate, still refuses to answer that question, this is a big problem for the Dems in Kentucky. As, and this is somebody that they thought was largely winnable. Well, I think it's still winnable. <clears throat> I think that uh, I think it's a mistake not telling who you voted for. <clears throat> she claims, well, it's private. Uh, that's why we have a ballot, et cetera. But uh, I still think that she she can pull it off. Wow, I would love to know what he's drinking. I agree with you, Alan. Dan Lipner. No, good. No. Who who Allison Grimes voted for is a red herring, and the reason it's a red herring is because it's a lose lose situation for her. She says she votes for Obama, and the Republicans say, "I told you so." She's an Obama Democrat. She says she voted against the president, and that is a. A, a, a storm in and of itself that the president's losing support even amongst Democrats. But, but you're talking about a Democrat who was largely seen as a rising star 
and the Democrats nationally have pulled almost all their money out of that race. How does she win? Let me let, Alan Moore. Let me tell you what's a bigger loser than being honest here and saying, "Hey, I don't love everything." As she says, she's put a lot of distance between herself and Obama. But she said, "Between Obama and Romney, of course I voted for." That doesn't mean I agree with him, and so on. When the 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 thing that that was so interesting about this one is after the first time when she was asked in an editorial board meeting with a Louisville paper, and she just blanked and looked odd and tried to talk about Hillary, and they kept coming back and never gave an answer. Chuck Todd, the new head of Meet the Press and a long-time former White House correspondent for, for NBC News, <laughs> said of her failure to, to, to speak, I think that's disqualifying. And that is now the featured line in every ad running in Kentucky. Mind you, it's a wildly inappropriate thing for totally, a member of the press to say. I completely agree with you there. I'll bet Chuck Todd is ruining and lamenting the fact that he let his thoughts get out there. But lots of people, I think, had the same thought. How can you not find a way to say, of course I voted for the president. My God, do you think I'm going to vote for Romney, of all things? No, but... That doesn't mean I agree. It it was not, in my judgment, lose-lose. She had one answer, and then she went double down last night in, in the in, in her debate. The only the only debate uh, between uh, her and and, and and McConnell, and she basically said, "No, it's private ballot. We don't have to tell." Um, wow, way was, to go with the whiny that voice was too. Pathetic. Yeah. All right, we're going to let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk about a little international politics. Go, go ahead, Alan Moore. Just one last thing. I saw a report this afternoon that the party has stopped spending money. In, the Democratic Party. Yeah, they pulled that. They pulled out all their money in in, in Kentucky. Uh, in Kentucky. They, yeah. And if that's true, that's very telling. Yeah. Because I uh, think that's a that's that a written off race. That that. Uh, that they've reached a conclusion yes. that doesn't work in her favor. We'll see if that's in fact the case. Look at it this way. They took their money, left Kentucky, and went to South Dakota. <laughs> and bought up every piece of that again. That's amazing. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to talk about the continuing crisis with, uh, in the, in the uh, Middle East uh, regarding ISIS. Uh, breaking news coming out of CNN. CNN is reporting that they are advancing stronger than they have been in recent weeks. Uh, there are now reports that saying that even Baghdad's airport could fall to ISIS, which would be a strategic failure on so many levels. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, 
why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. you've never heard of live on blog talk radio uh we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about the situation in the middle east regarding isis it continues to dominate uh the news cycles going forward latest news coming out of iraq and syria and the turkish border is isis is advancing at a level and a rate that even some of the biggest military planners in the country did not expect it's caught in a lot of military experts off guard. It is something that nobody saw coming and has now become a clear and present danger to American interests in the region. Why, why is everybody laughing at that? No, no, not laughing at that, laughing at the smoke. Oh, Jesus. I was like, wait a minute, this is ISIS. It's not laughable. Uh, anyway, Dan Lipner, when we, talk, when we look at the latest coming out of ISIS, they're talking about now that they've advanced so far that they're within sight of Baghdad. Uh, some reports have the fact that they're within striking distance of the Baghdad airport. Uh, that's a major tactical and strategic loss for those fighting against ISIS. Uh, how there, big there of are it? people fighting against ISIS? Wow. Well, this is, your, this the, is the, your... the, the, the Iraqi army is doing anything <laughs> meaningful or? Well, this brings up a valid point. Is this a situation where, hey, you didn't want boots on the ground, but guess what? We better find some boots to put on that ground real quick, or else we're gonna have a real problem. I, I'm glad to put somebody else's boots on the ground, just no American boots on the ground. So who do you put on? Somebody else can handle this, can carry this weight. Alan Moore. <laughs> this is just <laughs> gone. Is going about as bad as it could have uh, for the president, which is very, very unfortunate for everyone. Everyone, particularly in those countries, uh, for the neighbors, for the U.S., for Europe. Um, the uh, we, we clearly uh, underestimated uh, ISIS. Um, uh, I'm going to call them now the new jihadists. Again, as you know, I, I well, scum, you know, didn't scum really was very scum. derogatory. Not that I'm, not that I'm, <laughs> I don't have a problem. Didn't want to hurt ISIS feelings. Yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I, you know, out of respect for Islam, I don't want to call them Islamic anything. Um, and and uh, and clearly, their designs are broader than 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 the two countries. Um, um, but, but they, 
they we warned them we were going to come with uh, air power so they could do some hiding and then they they embed they conceal um and and we missed our opportunity to sort of get them while they were moving uh initially we got some we we definitely did but now they're they're operating with relative impunity moving around there's nobody inside syria on the ground who can who can fight them and we've been disappointed again and again and again inside Iraq by Sunni militias. Uh, the Kurds have had uh, one hand tied behind their back up in the north. Um, a problem uh, that, that has to do with, with uh, the, the very delicate negotiations with Turkey. Um, and then the Syrian militias who we want to train but haven't trained yet are saying, well, yeah, we want to go after them, but we want to go get Assad too. We hate Assad more than we hate these guys. We hate them all, but we can't just go fight one group that we hate second most and then, in, in, in so doing, help the people we, we hate the most. Um, but to stop them in these various towns and in these military bases that they seem to be taking over, you need people on the ground in hand-to-hand, uh, if you will, combat, and no one is around yet willing to play that role, and that is a huge problem for uh, for the rest of us. Carl Tuvin. Well, <clears throat> Secretary Kerry <clears throat> was in uh, Turkey and evidently made some kind of agreement. <clears throat> I would have loved to have been on the fly on the wall to find out what the agreement was, because Turkey made some airstrikes and what do they do? They hit the Kurds, uh, one of our coalition partners. So that doesn't bode very, very well. <clears throat> I did see on TV last night a general from the Iraqi army with troops, supposedly well-trained, and uh, uh, they were going, I don't know what the, what the area was, but they were going out to do battle with ISIL. Dan Lipner. Yeah, can we talk a little bit, a little bit about who is leading ISIL? And this this matters. So way back, and I, and I know Alan's going to have get, get pissed off about this, but way back when uh, the the coalition leadership dismissed the Iraqi army and just sent them home, in some cases with their guns, the leadership of the Iraqi army uh, went home with nothing to do, and it's and it's been reported that the reason that ISIL knows what they're doing is the Iraqi generals that were somewhat battle-hardened from both the, the, the first Gulf War and a rather long war with Iran have gone to, have gone to the side of ISIL. So that being said, who's in the region that knows what they're doing and is willing to actually put up and fight? The only obvious answer is the Kurds. But the problem is the Kurds and Turkey. And I would argue that the answer is actually cutting a deal between Turkey and the Kurds for a northern Iraqi Kurdish state to get the Kurds to go hands off on the territory they claim in Turkey and and getting all that energy focused on both Assad and ISIL. But that's not happening right now. Bob Hines, is that realistic? Well, it's it's the worst mess I've seen in a long time. I think that the idea we just heard makes some sense if you could ever get people to sit down and think about it. 
to make some sense. The Turks, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the, they, they, they're a problem. They won't move. It, it, in one sense, it, it drives me, you know, I, I keep thinking to myself, I cannot remember an American president who had so little influence on, on, on problems he's trying to solve. I mean, it's, it's, it's and I, I don't necessarily blame him. I mean, I, I just don't understand how we have so little influence as a nation as that I have, I've never seen a time when we have so little influence over over problems in the world that we're trying to solve. Carl Tuman, Carl Tuman, is is this a situation where the Obama administration and the government as a whole has lost credibility in the region enough to get nobody? To fight the scourge that is these new jihadists. I don't. <clears throat> I would kind of disagree. Um, I think that there are people. Uh, they've got Saudi Arabia to agree to have people trained there. I think that that you know we're still at the beginning of this. Uh, ISIL is making some um, some progress, maybe a lot of progress, but that can be turned around at some point. Uh, this is not going to be a short situation. It's going to be a long-term situation. <clears throat> and as I've said before, once we get finished with ISIL, which we will do at some point, there's going to be other groups that are going to rise up and form and be just as bad as, as these people have been. Alan Moore? I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're just going to see a whole sequence of group after group after group that's just going to follow. This isn't the big hydra. This was this was an unusual case, and I think I'd actually agree with Dan that that, that we we so screwed up what we did when we went into Iraq in the first place by disbanding the military uh, instead of trying to to take it, frame it, mold it, use it uh, as partners. You just said, "See you guys." Um, they uh, <laughs> they. Uh, they took their knowledge, uh, bided their time, and I I have no reason to doubt that that some key number of them are playing uh, uh, leadership roles in both thinking and 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 out in the field. Um, and and I don't see that happening again and again and again if we're able to to combat these guys. The 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 whole issue with the Kurds and Turkey uh, though comes to this other question. The, the, no one in the region believes that our president is a reliable partner. He has taken a tough line on a number of issues, both in Syria and in, 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 and in Iraq, and he's pissed off the Turks, and no one trusts that he will do what he says he did. No one wants to put their boots on the ground um, for their own self-protective reasons. And so we're sort of hanging out there without any allies that are really meaningful in terms of troops. Um, and the, and the, the Turks, remember, Turkey is very threatened by the Kurds in its southeast region. And the Kurds, they don't just want to move into northern Iraq. They want this whole region. And, and, and the irony in at the same time, we're trying to work out an arrangement where we can use our big air base or a couple of bases to to stage uh, sorties into Iraq and Syria. Um, 
Turkey has said no. We announced that we had a deal, and then within hours, the Turks have said, not so fast, not so fast. So we don't have a deal. Um, and and uh, and and now we're sitting there thinking, what what are we supposed to do now? We've we've screwed up our uh, our relationship with the Turks. The Turks want us to go after Assad, and the Turks do not want us to arm the Kurds. And we're <laughs> we need to arm the Kurds because they're the only guys who can <laughs> fight and are willing to fight. And and uh, we're we're in into this. Trapped for the time being. I think ultimately Turkey has to look to us and, and join us. But Becca Kaufman, I mean, when you look at it from the president's perspective, you've got a military that's already been strung out to capacity. They're already punch drunk, battle weary. They're they'll they'll fight where the president and the as commander in chief will tell them to fight. But he's got a delicate line of saying, how far do I push the envelope on these already battle worn down troops that we have? in a smaller sequestration defense department. How does the president balance that? I don't think that this is a matter of resources being expended. I think this is a matter of strategy. I mean, the airstrikes clearly aren't working. And I think that Obama's strategy of trying to contain ISIS isn't going to work. I kind of tend to go a little neocon on this issue because the things that I see happening over there enrage me. The things that I see happening in America when it comes to ISIS enrage me. And I think we just need to completely eliminate this group. Um, I, but I, how are we going to do that? Rebecca, how are we going to do that without putting American boots on the ground? Is that just a strategy failure? Or is this that, is this something that the president has to balance off as commander-in-chief? I think that putting um, boots on the ground is inevitable. When it comes really? To I do. I do. I think, and I think that we're, I think that we're going to see, if, he, if Obama fails to act on this, and this continues to spiral out of control, much like Ebola, um, we're going to see 2016 Five points for Becca inserting Ebola into this discussion. Uh, Dan Lipner, you were you were shaking your head no. Yeah, the the boots on the ground. Well, and I I, I appreciate the desire. I'm horrified, but by what ISIL is doing, and for lack of a better phrase, I have to call them ISIL. But I, I acknowledge they do not represent Islam. Um, that the American public when actually engaged with, with the issue, are going to ask one question in response to boots on the ground. And it's the same question that's been asked in Afghanistan and in Gulf War One, and now Gulf War Two. What's the exit strategy? And the fact of the matter is, Pat Buchanan had it right 10 years ago. He said, we're going to be there for the next 50 years. And everyone pushed back on it. And without flinching, his response was, we're still in Germany. And this president isn't going to do it. And with a little bit of luck and some diplomacy, I actually do think there actually is a world, this isn't Israel-Palestine issue, that it, the Kurds have been wanting their own state for a century. There is potential if they can swear off their, their territorial desires in Turkey to have a Kurdish state. That said, it's an entire refocusing of the conversation that is not being had at the moment, but there is a way of doing this since the Kurds are the only group in the region that have shown themselves actually able to govern themselves in but you're a talking real about way. A, you're talking about a fighting force that has less numbers, in, by some estimates, 
than the New York Police Department. You're talking and about the Kurds? The or? Kurds. I mean, you're talking about the Kurds. ISIL's not a huge fighting force either. They've got bigger numbers, according to some estimates, than the Kurds do. It's they're a lot they're a mo- territory. No, they're a motivated fighting force, and that and there is something to that. And so the question is, you look to the only other motivated group in the region, and those are the Kurds. And they have actually been a loyal partner from the get-go for everything we've done in Iraq. The Kurds are actually the people to look to. Now we're going to change uh, change here real quick. Um, breaking news coming out of CNN. Uh, CNN is now reporting that the Centers for Disease Control are sending an Ebola response team into Dallas, which some had said this might be the mark of this is a bigger problem than some had brought up. Uh, Bob Hines, is this a sign that we may not really know exactly how to handle this crisis of Ebola? And is the government doing everything it can right now to try at least respond to the eight ball versus trying to get ahead of it? Well, we we certainly right now we have um, we have last week a, a gentleman who was came into this country, you know, and was was, was ill uh, and didn't talk about it. He's died. A woman who has been a nurse uh, and helped help with him has now got the disease, and she's the, the only one we know that there is. So, and her dog's been quarantined. Dog. Yeah. And so, so the reality is we don't know. I don't know any more than what you just said with respect to what Dallas is doing. But we have got, I think, the far we we have not seen any serious uh, problems come into the country yet, and I don't think we're going to see any. I think we're, but I think it's very important that we don't let you know that a single case go untouched. Call Tuvin. Yesterday, the president met with some people from CDC and others, and he looked at them and he said to them. I want a group to go to Dallas, and I want I want to know what happened down there and why this woman has has, cut, has this disease. So a lot of that, some of this was the president's own asking for that investigation to happen. Uh, Alan Moore, though, it, it's only, it's yeah, yeah, Alan Moore. CDC is all over this thing because because their own credibility is on the line. What they have said is. That, that that Ebola is only transferred from with direct contact from from bodily fluids of people who are symptomatic. Somehow this nurse became infected, and what that suggests is that something happened with the basic protocols. The most likely thing being, and this is what they're all they're 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 trying to figure out, because there's no reason yet to believe that that we're wrong about how it's transmitted. But what, what does happen is you have on this suit, you're touching all this stuff. Then you have to get the suit off. And you have to get the suit off that's contaminated on the outside and you're on the inside. And somehow you have to get all this stuff off of you without touching the outside of it. And then if it's on you, touching your mouth, touching right. your eye uh, or something. And and there's, there's some studies of of infections in hospitals of some of these these nasty uh, staph infections that show that as many as as much as 10% of the time gloves that are contaminated get touched now 
if, if it's a staph infection in a hospital, chances are you're not going to get sick. Ebola is 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 so dangerous to the touch and so deadly, killing now about seventy percent of people who 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 are infected, they are down there trying to figure this out. I mean, of course, the president says, let's do it. I got, they were already getting down there because they needed not to figure that out. Not to go too much in the weeds. I mean, going off of what you're saying, this is actually something I did in a past life, is, is hazmat and biological response, is, you know, when you go in with these level A completely encapsulated suits, the way you take it off is very, very methodical, and you start at the head and you basically yep. peel it off and reverse it inside out so you don't come into contact with this. But this is a protocol that's been in, in place for as long as I've been in the professional workforce in that industry, and it seems that nobody's really put that forward. On top of the fact that you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with, and, and this is what concerns me a little bit, is you're dealing with a a virus that that doesn't that is not sporadic it doesn't have spores but it's highly mutative and it just seems to me that the experts that we're looking for at the CDC and at the NIH National Institute of Health the folks in Bethesda and Atlanta are still scratching their heads they really don't have a true understanding of what the potential of this virus is and it's mutating, it appears, at a, at a, at a tremendous rate. Carl, Carl Kevin. With what you just said, the, the thought has come uh, and was discussed yesterday that the possibility of when someone is unsuiting themselves, that there has to be someone there watching to make sure that the protocol is, is follow well you're talking about you're talking about setting up i mean like what we what people in in, in that industry call a level a decontamination right. Right. that is something that not a lot of a lot of hospitals have the capacity to deal with there's only four that have been certified by cdc right now to handle ebola right. and one of them happens to be in bethesda at the national institutes of health okay I, dan I, lipner i have two points one, the nurse who was infected actually has spoken on this, and she she actually drove herself to the hospital, and and the even the hospital itself said they were incorrect in blaming her for not following the protocol. That said, the National Nurse Association has actually spoken on this, saying, "Listen, we need training on this. There has not been enough training. That as as best as everyone is trying to help on this." You don't have the information getting from point A to point B. In addition to that, as to, to your point, Justin, making sure that everyone has the equipment they need to actually and the training. deal with this. And the training. The this is something that normally requires 40 hours of training just to even be in the same room as this virus. No, and I, I agree. And that's the other point I, I, I want to speak to. And since we are a political program, there's also the, the budget issue in the CDC that's worth mentioning. The CDC has mentioned, and this is a direct quote from Dr. Beth Bell, the director of CDC's National Center, Center of Emerging and Zoototronic, uh, has said that the $585 million that was cut from the CDC specifically on these kind of issues could have prevented... No, don't, hold on, don't hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. That when you're talking about military spending, as soon as there's a bad guy that floats up and, and the as soon as it's been 50 cents worth of defense spending, you automatically blame those cuts. 
That said, this is defense spending, except on a biological level. This matters. These priorities matter. Becca, you're laughing at this as saying that e the Ebola response as a sequestration issue is ludicrous. Why do you laugh? I just think it's hilarious that we're seeing Democrats try to politicize this issue. The enemy here is a virus, not Republicans. And, and it takes money to fight it. Okay. So Alan Moore? Maybe if we're going to talk about money, we should talk a broader set of facts about the money. This year, the president requested $6.6 billion, billion correct. for the CDC. Did he get it? Did he get a $6.6 billion? No. no. He got $6.9 billion. And he got 300 more than he asked for. CDC does all sorts of things. And how is it your mark? Don't, they don't just do this. It, you want to talk earmarks? We can talk earmarks. It's not about the earmarks. It's what's their total budget? What are their responsibilities? What's their range of activities that they're responsible Wait, for? So what you're saying, Alan, is what you're saying is I'm this saying, is a matter of this is a matter of CDC got 300 million more, and as a result, they got 300 million more to do their total mission, which they are highly trained yeah, and highly experienced in. They have lots of things they have to do. They don't just do this. They 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 their budget has been tripled, okay? Tripled three times what it was on 9/11 when post 9/11 there was this huge fear of bioterrorist attack and we decided that the public health system around the country and I was back in the Senate working for Bill Frist at the time and it was oh my god we've let the public health infrastructure decay we're not unprepared we're underprepared. We have got to beef things up. And we did in a big way. It maxed out about five or six years later. And and the money for emergency preparedness of this this range, this is about you was a, it got up to about a billion dollars and it's declined because so much of that was base infrastructure development. And then it competes every year with everything else. The president has gotten what more than what he wanted for CDC and about what he wanted for NIH, because I know we're probably going to hear about that here in a minute. Just if, be, be ready if you want to get that, if you want to bring that up. But it, it's not, it's, it, they got 8% more this year than they had last year. Did they spend it right? Is there enough money? If there's not enough money, the president, believe me, has the ability to say, we need an emergency supplemental. We need $100 million. We need $200 million. We need some amount of money. But, 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 but trying to turn this into a, into a political gambit is a bankrupt political strategy. I, I look forward to you saying the same thing next time to the military issue, Alan. Carl Tubin. I'm not going to turn it into a political bandit or whatever. There have been reports by this government, uh, two reports over the years. There have been Wall Street Journal articles that have claimed that this country, if faced with a, a nationwide disaster, would not be able to come up to the standards that anyone thinks we can do. And something has to be done. As per at the at the, uh, 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 the uh, HHS has been approached by different groups with plans for disaster 
and they have turned them down flat. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this. Also, breaking news coming out of out of uh, Tampa. Uh, U.S. Central Command has now announced that there are now 21 new airstrikes on ISIS near Kobani, near the Turkish border. A uh, little too little, little too late, kids, but that's just my opinion. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk about a nicer, peaceful thing, a kinder, gentler Catholic Church, as the Catholic Church meets in the Vatican City as they embrace, possibly, gay and lesbian uh, worshipers. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of Renaissance Capital, Washington, D.C., is I have to break up the debate <laughs> off-air, which would have been great debate on-air, but we unfortunately ran out of time. Hey, uh, real quickly, we want to talk about something happening over in Rome, over at the Vatican. Uh, the Catholic Church is meeting uh, for their their big annual policy convention, if you will call it. Uh, <laughs> The only way I can put it. Their doctrine offsite. Maybe you can let the Catholic at the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on. I will. I will. They're meeting their, on their annual doctrine spiritual off, retreat. Spiritual retreat, doctrine offsite, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but in, in news coming out of Rome, uh, it appears that Pope Francis is pushing a, a new doctrine saying that they should welcome even gay and lesbian parishioners into the Catholic Church. 
Bob Hines, what's going on in well, Rome? And, this al- is a- and also, uh, divorced Catholics who marry, marry again. Okay. Anglican. Huh? Yeah. I'll go back to the Catholic Church. Hey, uh, go ahead, Bob Hines. Well, what's happening in Rome? Well, I'm not sure because I'm not there. But I- <laughs> You, you can be up for Pope, though. Yeah. But I, I tell you this. I think that Francis is probably the best thing that has happened to the Catholic Church in, uh, in a number of years. Uh, he is a, he's a Jesuit. Uh, for, uh, for those who don't know, the Jesuits are an order of priests uh, founded about 500 years ago uh, that are, have always been intellectually high always been very um, uh, creative and have almost always been kind of pushed aside by the the, uh, the establishment the established Roman clerical and the curia for the last four or five hundred years primarily because they are always pushing to clean things up make things better and make it work cleaner but uh, uh, and today we have a Jesuit who is uh, the Pope. And he is doing exactly what I think the church needs to do. Uh, but, go ahead. Uh, no, Alan Moore, it, it seems to me like almost that the Catholic Church is having to play catch-up to other sects of Christianity, i.e. the Anglican uh, Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, who have all, who have in recent decades welcomed gay and lesbian and divorced parishioners. I mean, as I was told once by an Anglican vicar, hell, we were founded on divorce. Come on in uh, as a recovering Catholic. (laughs) But it it seems now that, is this a situation that the Catholic Church is changing with the times, or are they trying to truly reinvent themselves as a truly embraceable sect of religion? You know, it's it's not clear what all is going on here. I think we shouldn't overinterpret. Um, it, it is definitely true that 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 Pope Francis uh, is trying to live the the Jesuit norm, which is follow in the steps of Jesus, which is how you treat your fellow man in a giving, sharing, open uh, and caring way, and not be judgmental. Now, that's pretty. <laughs> Hard when you've when you've got uh, you've got hundreds of years of uh, of judging pretty harshly. Um, remember what's happening. This is a two week long enterprise. There are some documents that are shared that the group is supposed to reflect upon. This is not a new uh, encyclical from the Pope. This is not a new uh, change of policy. But but in this document, they're suggesting that they need to consider discussing whether to be more open and accepting of gays, of divorced persons, and of couples who are not married, um, uh, heterosexual couples uh, who, who cohabit. All of these things are, and it's not to say that the church is on the verge of saying, we welcome them, we encourage them, we give them equal uh, equal stature, but should we turn them away at the door? Do they? Do these people, as human beings, not deserve some level of respect? And do they not have something to offer to uh, to our religion? And do we really want to to be seen as uh, unwelcoming? How can we deal with this? Now, some of it is a sign of the times. Some of it is the sign of a fairly courageous new leader um, who 
who believes that this is his calling. Um, it's very significant, very important. It's not a sea change, but the tide is moving, and and uh, it, it'll be very interesting to watch. Becca, we, we when we look at the sea changes happening with the Catholic Church, is this a sign that other areas of religion we might see a softening on gay marriage, as we've seen with the Supreme Court rulings? Is this something that we're going to see a toned down? rhetoric almost from the GOP and saying, look, this is something we just need to keep our hands off of. Even the Catholics are saying we need to be more encompassing and involving of that sector of our population. Probably, if I had to guess. I mean, I think for the Catholic Church, it's a matter of survival to keep their constituency and their and their numbers up. I mean, that was almost a direct quote from the Pope that you just said that he said homosexuals have characteristics and qualities that are valuable to the Catholic community. And the same thing applies to Republican politics. Homosexuals have a standpoint and opinions that are valuable to the Republican community. I think that I think that we will see this translate to politics, um, but we're equally going to see a backlash. And we're already kind of seeing somewhat of a backlash within Catholic communities. We have a few Catholic um, representatives stepping forward and saying, "This isn't right. I don't agree with this. Um, we need to. We need to." Um, respect the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. Um, and we have the same thing in Republican world, people like Mike Huckabee, who this week said that he would leave the Republican Party if we take a, a pro-gay marriage stance. So there's going to be a backlash, but I think in general, society is trending towards accepting. Oh, no, Mike Huckabee's going to leave the GOP. Oh, my heart breaks. Go ahead, Dan Lipner. Uh, well, that's actually not a small thing. Uh, I, I actually agree with Rebecca. And let me be, state clearly, while I'm not a Catholic, I, I am an agnostic Jew. I think this pope is great uh, for a bunch of different reasons. Not the his focus on accepting and bringing people into the fold, also his focus on the impoverished around the world. This pope has been very, very good on talking about other issues aside from at least in American politics that have been almost strictly talking about abortion and homosexuality. That being said, Mike Huckabee's statement about wanting to wanting the Republican Party to take a harder stance against gay marriage and and saying that he's going to lead the Republican Party is an interesting fracture that could really hurt Republicans in the long run. Mike Huckabee could very well be the first American Baptist Pope. <laughs> leading, leading Republicans to anything but the promised land because the Christian coalition has been a very fundamental part to the Republican national coalition. Bob Hines, how does the GOP expect to be all-encompassing, embraceable of all sectors of our population, being the population of the Emancipation Proclamation, the, the, the party that, that truly embraces all sectors of our population, while still having these social issues still be at the top of the platform? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm the wrong person to discuss this, because quite frankly, I fundamentally believe that it is not a, a political party which has a rigid philosophy almost inevitably disappears because times change, attitudes change, structures change. And I think we are stupid if we are so rigid 
as a party that we say it's my way or the highway. I don't want us. I don't want the Republican Party to end up being the Tea Party party. Alan Moore, do you agree? Yeah, I think that that uh, this issue is changing in our society so fast that, that political types realize, gosh, to oppose these major trends, legal and social and generational, um, is gonna is gonna make my party smaller and smaller and smaller, and I don't have a chance to succeed. So what do I do? Fall on my spear on this, or or, or quietly, grudgingly oppose, but accept and focus my attention elsewhere. I do not think that gay marriage and gay rights is the fall on your sword issue that abortion or gun rights is. Those two are are still so powerful that people will be single issue voters. I think the number of people who would be single issue voters on on gay rights is shrinking very very fast. And Huckabee is going to have, you know, if if he if if he if he were to leave the party over this issue, he would be able to meet with his party two years from now, if probably in one large room. Oh, that's not true. There's people leaving the Republican I party. Know. Oh, my not leaving. Still. No, no, no. Not leave. That's the thing. Do you leave the party, or do you get ticked off about this issue? You agree to disagree. Or you have to practice what conventions on the topic. This is not a. This is not a. This is not an incom. My party's figured this out. Fractious conventions are very bad TV. No, 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 no. I know that, and I think that that, that this is not the issue that that two years from now the, the party will fracture over. I could be wrong. It's happening. Things are happening so fast. That's really my only point. Good point. Well, I want to take that. Uh, I want to take that being the last word, and I'm going to now go to my favorite part of the show. It's called Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest innuendo. Rumor and news that we sometimes scoop inside and outside the Beltway. Bob Hines, tell me a story. A story in one sentence. The Republicans will win the Senate. Wow, good call and quick. I like that. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. I have been uh, watching the ads on TV in Maryland that uh, Larry Hogan has been putting on. Beating up on the administration, beating up on Brown, etc. They're not wrong. And I, I uh, all of a sudden, I just welled up with rage because Brown and his people are not putting anything on to combat a lot of this. And I, I had a, a, a conversation with the Attorney General candidate from Maryland. Uh, and mentioned this. He said, you know, if he doesn't start talking and, and campaigning and letting people know where he is and who he is and talk about the future, he's going to lose. And by God, I opened the paper in Baltimore over the weekend, um, and there it was where he had a tremendous lead in the first poll about a month ago. He's now down to, I think, a seven-point lead. And I have a feeling that Maryland could be an upset for Hogan the governorship. Wow. It's hard to beat facts, though. Gosh. Becca, tell me a story. Well, last week, the White House rolled out its millennial study 
they spent taxpayer money to find interesting facts like millennials watch TV and are shaped by technology. That was assuring that they spent our money on that study. Um, that being said, their rollout was infographics that had emojis scattered between the facts. <laughs> so their economic pitch to America's youth included emojis. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Let me call in parentheses. So let me get this straight. <laughs> the Obama administration put out an economic package to millennials that basically said yeah. we need to spend more on social spending, happy face, heart, yeah. happy whale, yeah. and really. The Affordable Care Act smiley face. Okay. <laughs> Student loan reform with a graduation hat. I mean, you can't, you can't write this up. It was so insulting and condescending to the intellect of my generation, and I thought it was funny. Oh, I remember funny and sad. They instantly Snapchatted, and it was all disclosed. Oh, my gosh. That's right. In 30 seconds or less. <laughs> yeah, Alan Moore, tell me a story. The Oregon governor's race is bizarre. Turned really weird and strange, and I never, I take no pleasure in, in sort of ridiculing somebody else's problems. But the governor, a guy named John Kithaber, has has a first lady and it's his fiance who lives in the uh, governor's, governor's mansion. mansion with with him and and they've they you know seem to be doing okay and, and maybe they're they're paying attention I don't know if either one of them is a Catholic but you know they're paying attention to uh, the conversations in Rome. Gee, maybe we can start going and uh, going to mass. But this poor guy and this poor woman. It turns out that that she never mentioned to him uh, a little thing that that happened uh, to come out in the last week. Um, that in 1997 she got married to an immigrant who was on the verge of being sent of being deported. And she did it because she needed money to pay for a computer and tuition. So she took $5,000 to have an illegal marriage, uh, which is a serious offense in the U.S., and then had to admit it uh, on television and never really got to mention it to her fiancé. And then it turned out in the last 24 hours that the other thing going on in her life at that time was that she had a boyfriend uh, at the time who was apparently not a very nice guy. And they they, they started a business. They spent they, they invested in a $250,000 piece of land in the state of Washington on which they were going to raise marijuana. Now, she says that her money, she didn't have any money, so she didn't put money in it, but yes, her partner did start that, and then they had to abandon it after a few months because they couldn't get it going. He had the worst week yeah. in Oregon. Yeah, and, that's tough. Uh, I feel bad for all of them. That's tough. Dan Lippner, tell me a story. Uh, well, in New Jersey, they've had had some interesting things having to do with uh, the wildlife issues in New Jersey. Uh, earlier this year, they actually... Are you talking about Snooki and the Boardwalk? I'm not touching that. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, I, there was actually a hiker that was that, that was attacked and killed by a black bear, to which the New Jersey Department of Wildlife has actually... Uh, introduced black bear hunting. Uh, in addition to talking about that black bear is, 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 is makes for good cuisine. So put it another way, we have the former Republican president, Teddy Roosevelt, the bears were cuddly. Ronald Reagan, you should not fear the bear. Chris Christie, you certainly can eat it. <laughs> really? 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 That's your story. That's my story. It's all true, by the way. Screw that noise. <laughs> Have you ever had bear? 
I've never had bear. It's actually not bad. Hey, it's uh, a good point. <laughs> yeah, it's actually not bad. Hey, uh, so uh, our friends, our friends at Bloomberg have come up with a poll, and the poll shows that the two moderate candidates potentially for the 2016 Republican nomination, Chris Christie and Jeb Bush, have horrible ratings in Iowa, according to Bloomberg sources. That the point is that the moderate voice in the Republican Party apparently is not being heard, much to the chagrin of many moderate Republicans. So that being the case. Uh, we got to get our act together. And that being the case, it is now time for me to say, on behalf of Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Becca Kaufman, Alan Moore, and Dan Littner Esquire, I'm your host, Radio's Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday, where we will talk about all great things happening in politics and around the world here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? This is the place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on the web, www.backroompolitics.org. You can email me your questions, concerns, or comments at Justin Russell or Justin at backroompolitics.org. Or you can tweet us on Twitter at backroompolitics. We'll see you next week, America. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you.